0: All right, <clears throat> so as I said, we're going to be in Exodus today. We're in Exodus 40 uh, verse uh, Exodus chapter number 40. As we jo- go into this, we're going to be continuing. Obviously, this is our walk through the book of Exodus, and it has been Absolutely awesome. But last week we tracked really through a journey, the journey of the Israelites, as we we're kind of looking at where they came from, as we're seeing where they're journeying to uh, God's picture of restoring the Israelite people back to their land. Now, this is where they originated. Understand Canaan used to be their land a long time ago, but then because of a famine that came through, as we talked about last week, they actually left there and their, their option that they found as the best solution was to move to Egypt. Egypt is where they ended up being enslaved for 430 years. After 430 years, God finally brought them out out of that. And what we've seen as we've been studying through this book of the Exodus and these 99 messages, the last year of it has literally been focused on just the tabernacle, this incredible supernatural tent that's in the middle of nowhere. And what we saw uh, through the history lesson last week is not only was it about, no, understand, the tabernacle was all about restoring intimacy. Okay. So we're gonna look at is this aspect of the intimacy that God's trying to restore with them. But at the same time, we also see that God's not only working to restore them in their intimacy with God, but he's also working to restore their nation. He's trying to get them back. To where it is they came from. Now this was promised to them to their ancestor Abraham six hundred and forty six years earlier in two thousand ninety one BC. God told Jesus uh, in Genesis twelve seven. The Lord said this, and the Lord appeared unto Abraham and said, unto thy seed will I give this land. Here's a promise from God. And there built he an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. So the restor- restor- restoration, blah, 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 the restoration of the Israelites is twofold. Okay. There is a physical restoration or a spiritual restoration and there is a physical restoration. The spiritual restoration is by way of the tabernacle. God had the tabernacle built so that they could have atonement for sin, deal with their sin and that issue of of spiritual issues, but also a place where they could have holy worship. But then we see the restoration physically. This is returning them to their homeland. God's doing in us, guess what, a physical restoration and a spiritual restoration as well. So as the people are on their way back to the land, Where they came from, but what's interesting, and we'll find as we study the history of the Israelites, is you're going to see that they're during times of obedience, they'll have possession of the land, but in times of disobedience, guess what? They lose possession of the land. Okay, so we see this this pattern that goes from them gaining and losing throughout history. Okay, now in Ezekiel chapter number eleven. Verses 15 through 17, Ezekiel, being used by God as a prophet, speaking into the future, listen to what he says about what will happen to the Israelites, the Jewish people. It says here in verse 15, Son of man, thy brethren, even thy brethren, the men of thy kindred, and all the house of Israel holy. So he's obviously speaking about the Jewish people. Are they unto whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, Get you you far from the Lord, unto us is this land given in possession. So we're going to see there's people that come and usurp the land from the Jews. And what we find here is the fact that this happened. Now, when Jesus was on the earth, we found that they were actually under the possession or under the control of the Roman empire. But then what happens in 70 AD, the Romans are basically like, look, you know what? We're done with you guys. And they come in, they destroy the temple, and they drive the Israelites out. They take it over altogether. So now what happens is now the, the, the Israelites are scattered all over the world. Now, this is, prof- this is prophetic. Listen to verse, that was verse 15, verse 16. This is what God says. Therefore, say thus, saith the Lord, although I have cast them far off among the heathen and although I have scattered them among the countries, yet will I be to them as a little sanctuary in the countries where they shall come. Okay, so God says, I'm going to scatter them all over the world. But guess what? I'm going to also protect them. I'm going to take care of them. So even though they're all over the place, I'm going to be providing for them. Now, look, over the next two, almost 2000 years, they are scattered all over the world. Incredibly, they will, have, they will preserve their customs, their religion, their language, and their culture. This has never happened. Understand, throughout human history, there's never been a people that has been displaced that's able to hold on to the, who they are, okay? What we see here is there's been no nation who's ever, ever, ever been restored once it's been displaced. What happens is they actually integrate into the cultures that they're in, and they basically vanish, and all of their customs disappear, Now, that's happened always, always, always through all of human history. That's always been the case, except for only with one nation. Because guess what? God makes promises. Verse 17 of Ezekiel 15 says this, or Ezekiel 11, Therefore, said, Thus saith the Lord, I will even gather you from the people and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. Hear that promise? So look at this, this, this promise. Now, what's so cool about this is God made that promise. It's been about 2,000 years. Somehow, miraculously, they, they keep all these things of who they are. They keep their identity. And in, 19, and in 1917, there was something called the Belfort Declaration. And what happened, this is actually after World War I. There was a great uh, attacks against the Jews during that time. And there was a man that God put in place who was a Jewish man who he wanted to try to restore the homeland. And in going to the British government, they signed the Balfour Declaration. What it did was it gave the Jews a homeland where they could return to. So guess where it happened to be? In Canaan, the original place. So here it is, right? So Israel's there. Now what happens because of that Balfour Declaration is the Jews start coming. They're all over the world, and here they start coming. There's this mass migration that start to gather. And all of that culminates in 1948. Because understand, they were not a country. They weren't recognized by the United Nations. They weren't recognized as a nation. But in 1948, because of what happened to the Jews during World War II, listen to this, all that horrific treatment of the Jews, the world came together and said, you know what, what can we do as restitution for the horrors that the Jews suffered? Why don't we recognize them as a nation? And God used, remember, God works all things together for good. And the murder of six million Jews, God used that to affect the heart of the nations of this world. To recognize Israel and restore the nation that he promised thousands of years ago would be restored. That is awesome. It is unheard of and unprecedented in human history. But guys, 2,000 years, it's not a big deal to God. (laughs) For us, we're like, wait, that's incredible. God's like, whatever. Right? And it's simply just more proof of the fact that God makes promises and he'll keep it. And there's another one that God made that just proves the fact that God keeps his promises and it defies all odds, which is the preservation of his word. 1 Peter one twenty three says this, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which believeth and abideth forever. Psalm 119, There's a ton of verses, but I'm gonna just give you two. Thy word is true from the beginning. Every one of thy righteous judgments shall endureth, shall endureth forever. So despite an all out onslaught on the word of God, he has preserved the Word of God through unbelievable attacks. And in our hands today, we can hold the King James Bible. This is the translation, the English translation of God's Word in, for, for, the, for the English-speaking world. And God has preserved it throughout time. And it is amazing. And all what this proves to us and what it shows to us through the preservation of the Word and the preservation of His nation is the fact that God has said, you know what? I can be trusted. Amen. If I make a promise, I will fulfill it. So we see here undeniable proof of that fact. But then there was the, so we see, first of all, God would restore the Israelites spiritually with the tabernacle. But then there was the physical, which is restoring them back to their promised land. Okay, so we see the two aspects. But guess what? God's made promises to us yes. as well, right? They are spiritual and physical for us. Our spiritual restoration was through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That was promised all the way back in Genesis 3. Yeah. Genesis 3.15 says this. This is God speaking to Satan. He says, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. What this is telling us is you know what? Satan will be defeated, but it will, it will be by way of the suffering of our Savior, prophesying the Lord Jesus Christ way back in Genesis chapter 3. Then it's been prophesied throughout the entire Old Testament. We see it again and again and again and again, speaking of Christ's coming. The most notable being Isaiah, chapter number 53, verses 5 through 11. Here, Isaiah speaking of Christ. says, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shears is dumb. So he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from the judgment and who shall declare his generations. For he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgressions of my people. Was he stricken and he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death because he had, not, he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord. Listen to notice, notice the word he uses to bruise him. The very same word we saw in Genesis 3, Genesis 3:15. 3, he hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hands, he shall see of the travail of his soul, and shall be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall my righteous, righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Christ. Thousands of years before he came. Isaiah 65, 6, 17 teaches us something else. So we see there's the physical or the spiritual restoration, which is through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. But then there's a physical restoration. See, some of them have already happened. The spiritual's already happened, the physical's yet to come. That's on its way. Because after the millennial reign of Christ, there's going to be a physical restoration on this planet. And 2,700 years ago, Isaiah said this in 65, 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come into mind. Then the Apostle John, when he's given the visions in the book of Revelation, Revelation 21, it just happens to say this right here. Revelation 21, 1 through 3, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, behold. Now remember, when we looked in the book of Exodus and we studied in Exodus, what did we see? We saw the fact that God said, you know what? I'm going to be with my people, right? I will dwell among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Remember what that's what he said? Listen to this in 21.3. And he says, and God, he says, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people and God himself shall be with them and be their God, right? So we certainly have seen God's provision, we talked about that last week as God's made all the provision. But then we see the promise of restoration, the promise of restoration. And listen to what Jesus said in his promise to us in John 14, verses 2 through 3. In my Father's house are many nations. If it were not so, I would have told you I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, what does it say? I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. God always keeps his promises. So spiritually and physically, God's always working restoration or to restore his creation. And whether this be on an individual personal basis or planetarily, that's what God's working toward. It's about restoring us. So last week, we focused on that provision of restoration as we talked about what it was to worship God. We talked about what was required in order for us to do that. And this morning, we're going to do is we're going to focus on the aspects of God's promises of restoration as we'll look at what's required to walk with God, okay? This is gonna take place in the outer court of the tabernacle. We've gone through the different parts and pieces. The outer court is a place of sacrifice and it is a place of cleansing, sacrifice and cleansing. So as we worked our way through the different sections, the three sections of the tabernacle, there was first the Holy of Holies. Now this is the place of intimacy. This is where the Ark of the Covenant was. This is about that closeness with God. Then there was the holy place. And the holy place, that's where the, 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 the table of, uh, of showbread, that's where the candlestick is, that's where the altar of incense. This was about worshiping God. And then here, the outer court. In this outer court, we're going to find the altar of burnt offerings. And we're also going to find the labor, the brass labor. So, and then the very last thing will be the drapery, the doorway, which is called the gate in the outer court. And as they pass out of that gate, that will be the very last thing. So as we today, as we examine God's promise and finish the third and final part of our message today, which is called God's Vision Realized. Let's pray. Lord, for, thank you so much for today. And God, just giving us the opportunity that we have, uh, Lord, to be not only in your house and amongst your people, uh, Lord, but to be into your word. Thank you, God, for the power of the word of God, the supernatural quality that it has. And I pray, God, that you will help our hearts to be broken for who you are and who it is that we are to be. God, you have so much for us. Help us, Lord, today to have ears to hear. Help our hearts to be engaged. Help our eyes, God, to see the truths in the word that you have for us. God, I pray that you'll remove the human element from this message. Help me to disappear. God, I don't want to be heard. I want you to be heard in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Exodus 40, verses 29 through 33. We'll read through them real quick, and then we'll take them apart. It says, and he put the altar of burnt offering by the door of the tabernacle of the tent of the congregation. And offered upon it the burnt offering and the meat offering as the Lord commanded Moses. And he set the labor between the tent of the congregation and the altar, and put water there to wash withal. And Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet thereat. When they went into the tent of the congregation, and when they came near unto the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. And as he and he geared and he geared, and he reared up the court round about the tabernacle, and the altar set up the hanging of the court gate, so finished, so Moses finished the work. So the outer court of the tabernacle is, it's interesting because this is the only part that's accessible to the common people. It wasn't just for the priests. This was a place of sacrificing, a sacrifice and cleansing. So those that were seeking God, they would have the option of coming in to the outer court. So as the Israelites are setting this up, the very first thing they're gonna put in place is that altar of burnt offering, right? We saw that in verse number 29. So last week, uh, we referred back to our study. Now in Exodus 37 and 38, we did an extensive study where we broke down every individual part and piece of all of these things. We're not gonna do that this week. We're gonna just kind of do the the highlights just to sort of work through it. So we have an image that's gonna pop up for you and we're gonna look at it physically. What do we know about this altar? So this altar is seven and a half feet uh, wide. It's seven and a half feet deep, and it's about four and a half feet tall. It's made of shittim wood, which is a deep hardwood. It's covered in brass. It is hollow, and it's built with a, with a grate over it so that the fire would actually burn up through the grate, like kind of like a fire pit would work. It has horns on all four corners, okay? We see this is where the animals would actually be bound if they had to be held in place, and we also see that they, like the ark, and like the table and like the altar of incense, it has rings on all four corners that will actually help to be when it has to be moved by the staves. And also, like the table and like the altar, the staves are removable. Okay? So this is all about accessibility, where the ark is the only one where the staves would not be removed. So that gives us a good idea of kind of what it looks like physically. But let's look at it from a spiritual standpoint. First, we see that the wood, it's wood covered in brass, revealing that it pictures the corruptible nature of humanity, which is represented in the wood, combined with the brass— which is associated with judgment. Brass is associated, associated with judgment. So picturing here that, uh, the judgment that all of humanity will face as a result of their, sin, of their sinful nature. Then there's the fire grate. Okay? The reason why the fire grate is there is because these, these sacrifices were to be placed on the grate and they were to be completely consumed, burned to ashes by this consuming fire, which is what God describes himself in Hebrews twelve twenty nine. For our God is a consuming fire, it says. Then we see the horns, okay? This is pictures of submission, right? What held Jesus down was the, on the cross. Those pins, it was his submission. He could have come down at any point in time, but it was a submission of being held in place. And then the four rings that are made of brass pointing to the eternity of judgment that people will face in this world if they don't come by way of Christ. And then the removable staves showing the access, saying, you know what? Whosoever will can come. In Exodus forty twenty nine. looking at the positioning of this altar, it says, And he put the altar of burnt offering by the door of the tabernacle of the tent of the congregation. We see that it's placed on the eastern side, outside of the tent, It's set by the door. Okay? Now, the reason why we know this is because the, the tabernacle is always set up facing east. So when the sun would rise, they would look out the, the tabernacle and they would see the sun coming up. Reason being, now, as we, I think I've got a picture showing you kind of the way it's set up. Let's see if we've got that there. There we go. So we see here's the, here's the altar here, and we have it set up on that side of the door. Now, the reason why it's on that eastern side, and this is relevant, is the fact that God always moves. We talked about last week that God is located in the north, but he moves from east to west. That's the way he travels, and I'm going to sort of take that apart. Let's look at it just to make sure that we're all on the same page with this. Consider the fact that uh, in, Exodus, in Genesis 2.8, now the Garden of Eden is what we're going to be talking about. Understand, Eden is a land. The garden of Eden, it just means it's a garden within a land, okay? Genesis 2, 8 says this, And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed, okay? So that's where Adam was. Now, what we know is with Adam, they had children, Adam and Eve, and they had Cain and Abel, right? We know what happened with Cain and Abel. That's where Cain killed Abel. Abel, Cain is actually a picture, the Bible calls him, that says that he was of that wicked one, okay? Cain is a picture of humanity, pure humanity, the sinful humanity. So what happens with Cain is he is a picture of those that will live contrary to God. Their motion, their attitude, their actions are contrary to God. Genesis 4.16 says this of Cain, And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. When he left Eden, he did not go west. He went an exact opposite, contrary to God. Galatians 5.17 says this, for the flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh these are contrary the one to the other so that ye cannot do the things that ye would okay so we clearly see that contrary actions that's the work of man we work contrary to God God goes his own way and the bible says when we look back in Isaiah 53 it says we will all go our own way right God says ah, i want you to go my way Again, more proof of this. Exodus 14, 21, an east wind is what God, when the the Israelites are are prepared at the Red Sea and the Egyptians are coming up behind them, an east wind is what God moves in to part the waters. Then in Ezekiel's vision, Ezekiel saw saw God coming from the east. When we go to Malachi chapter number four, verse number two, we see that Jesus actually pictures, or the Lord pictures himself as the sun, the S-U-N, right? Coming from the east. And then think about this. When Jesus returns... Which way will he come from? From the east. Matthew twenty four twenty seven says this, For as the lightning cometh out of the east and shineth east from even unto the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. God's traveling east to west. He's saying, hey, look, you know what? If you're going to enter this tabernacle, you're going to move the way I move. Right? How cool is that? All these cool little subtleties, everything has a purpose. Then there's the brass altar. We look at the accessibility of whosoever may come, right? Pointing to the fact that this altar is not set aside just for the sanctified priests alone, but other people would have access to it as well. The priests would work on their behalf. And then let's look at this, this altar here in regards to what it displays. Exodus 40 verse 29 says this, And offered upon it the burnt offering and the meat offering as the Lord commanded Moses. So this is the place where the animals, the animal sacrifices were made for the atonement of sin, okay? The altar, we know, is associated with judgment. Now, in regards, because of judgment, there has to be an offering. When we were inside the tabernacle, we only saw gold and silver. But when we get outside of that that tabernacle of congregation, what we find here is now we've shifted. The metal of choice is now brass. Inside of the tabernacle representing the deity of God, And the redemption of God in gold and silver, but now outside we're dealing with brass related to that judgment. So, in fact, the very first time that this shows up, an an offering, a a, uh, offering, uh, burnt offerings uh, on altar, burnt offerings. The very first time this shows up is back in the book of Genesis in chapter two or chapter number eight, verse twenty. And what happens here is this is an atonement for sin. This is when Noah, there's been the flood, the worldwide flood where God has judged the world. And what happens is as soon as they come off of the ship, what do they do? He goes and sets up an altar of burnt offerings and he makes offerings unto God for the atonement of sin. In Genesis eight twenty, it says here, and Noah built an altar unto the Lord and took of every clean beast and of every clean fowl and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And what was significant about this is they had to be completely consumed. Okay. This is a picture of complete submission, complete submission, which is what is required of us. If our sin is to be forgiven, if we are to be reconciled unto God, it takes complete submission. And that's hard because we like to have control of our destiny. I'll do things my way, right? Complete submission. Then spiritually, this brass altar pictures two things. Well, first it pictures the complete submission of our Lord to his cross, okay? We know that from the beginning, that was God's plan. We look back in Genesis chapter three, there's clearly seen the cross here was God's plan, but also the fact that. Without the remission there is no remission of sins without the shedding of blood we learn that from Hebrews 9:22. And the fact is when God looked at this world, my oh my, was there sin. My oh my. This is a sinful dark place and because of there was a requirement for a sacrifice, a requirement that Christ would fulfill. So we see the reason why Jesus came, right? It's love. Love, and we've talked about it a million times, for Amen. God so loved the world. We all know this. We've heard it, we've we've talked about it. But bottom line is that comes down to this, the fact that his love was so much, not so much that it even put him on the cross, but it kept him there to his dying breath. Amen. To the very end. He endured all that suffering to the very last moment. Mm. He could have stopped it. Mm-hmm. He could have said, you know what? This is enough. <laughs> I mean, I have suffered horrifically, and you know what? I'm done. Let's quit here. But he doesn't. In fact, the night before he goes to the cross, knowing what's coming, when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and the soldiers come to get him, and Peter whips out his sword and cuts off somebody's ear, and God's like, the Lord's like, hey, Peter, put that away. Put that away. You know, those that live by this word, they die by this word. Peter, put that down. That's not what you're called to be. You're called to love. I don't want you to be a warrior. I want you to love people. And this is what he says to him. Matthew 26. Thinkest thou that I cannot Now pray to my father and he shall presently give me more than 12 legions of angels. A legion is 6,000 soldiers. That's 72,000 soldiers. Don't you think I could pray and God could just handle this for me? But listen, listen. Verse 54. But how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled that thus it must be? How can my father's promise be fulfilled if I not follow through? God always keeps his promise no matter what suffering it took. Next, this past altar pictures our submission to our own cross, right? We've been studying on Wednesday nights what it means to be a true follower. What does that mean? It's about denying our flesh. But we've been talking about going to our cross, right? And that Mark 8.34, he said this, this is when he had called the people unto him and his disciples also. He said unto them, whosoever will come after me, who will be a follower, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The Lord literally equates our surrender of our will to a crucifixion. He's saying, take up your cross. He's not talking about a physical cross. It's a, a spiritual cross where I'm saying, look, Lord, you know what? I give myself to you. It's no longer about my will. But Lord, now for the first time in my life, your will. God, use this life for your glory. And not for mine. My way ain't working out so good. Would you step in and and get this thing straightened out? Please help me, Lord. The reason why it's so important, this sacrifice, is that we cannot do or be who God's called us to be when our flesh is alive and well. It needs to die. Galatians 5.17, we read it a minute ago. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit. And the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. Now, before we looked at that word contrary, but this time focus on this the word cannot. You cannot do the things that you would, it becomes an impossibility. Meaning that without sacrifice, we cannot walk with God. Without sacrifice, we cannot serve God. And without sacrifice, we cannot be used of God. That's speaking of His sacrifice, but it's also speaking of our sacrifice. God has made provision. He's provided a promise. He says, look, I'll use you, but I need you to surrender. I need you to give yourself. So we have this aspect of the outer court as a place of sacrifice, no doubt about it. But it's also a place of cleansing, which brings us to the next item, the laver, this brazen laver. Exodus 40, 30 says this, and he set the laver between the tent of the congregation and the altar and put water there to wash with all, okay? So we'll review what it is physically. Let's first take a look at what the labor potentially look like. We have obviously no idea what it looks like. Exodus 38, like I said, we learned a ton about what the labor is and all the details, but we're not gonna get into that. There is something very interesting is the fact that it's made out of brass. We know physically it's made out of brass, but what's cool is where the brass comes from. This is neat. In Exodus 38, 8, we learn this. And it says, He made the laver of brass and the foot of it of brass of the looking glasses of the women assembling, which assembled at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. Okay? When it talks about the looking glasses, it's not talking about a mirror that you and I would imagine. What they actually have are brass plates that have been polished to a super, super fine finish. And then the ladies can check their makeup and check their hair before they're going to go to the store there in the village, right? So what's neat about it is the fact that it's, and what's relevant to the fact that they're mirrors will make sense whenever we get to the water and what's pictured in the water that's within the basin, okay? So then we also find out this thing was made into two parts. It was to be filled with water, and it was a place where the priests would wash themselves. So physically, that gives us a good idea of what it is. But now let's look at it spiritually, okay? Spiritually. Now, as we look at this thing, we certainly understand that it's correlation to judgment is it's made of solid brass, And now understand also, this is cool because back in God's instructions, when he told us about the laver and what it was going to be, he gave some very specific instructions. What's cool about it is we can hear something in there that's really unique. Verse Exodus 30, 18, this is where God's given instructions to build it. Thou shalt also make a laver of brass and his foot also of brass to wash withal. and thou shalt put it between the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, and thou shalt put water therein. So we notice that in that verse, it says his foot. So that pronoun stands out there. What we know because we've been studying through this whole tabernacle is Jesus is pictured all over the tabernacle. Well, guess what? The labor is no different. That pronoun is pointing to the fact that we need to pay attention to what it is we see. So it makes sense here that he's doing that. Now, as we move to the positioning of where the labor is sitting, it'll even make more sense as we're going to see that actually... Jesus, who's pictured in this, is manifested in two forms. He's going to be first manifested as the man, Jesus Christ, and then he'll also be pictured as the Word. As the Word. So we'll see that in just a moment. So we see this is a place of spiritual cleansing where sin is to be dealt with. So now the positioning. Exodus 40, 30 said this, and it set the laver between the tent of the congregation and the altar. So they set the altar up, and then we see that, and we've got a picture of it, I think. I can let you see. So we see here, so here's the altar right in between that laver's sitting there. So if you're heading from the altar, you're going to go by way of the laver. So the brass altar is on the eastern side of the tent of the congregation between the two. As we saw in the description, there's, it is used for cleansing. Um, we see also the fact that it is the priest, as the priest would lead the sacrificial altar, dirtied and muddied up from whatever it is they were doing there at the altar, they're going to go before they were going to go into that Holy of Holies, they're going to go by way of that labor first. And it's very important that they do because God warned them. If you go back into the, in his, in his uh, description, which I don't have yet. It's not in my notes, but we'll jump to that. Um, but as we, as we look at this, I'll go ahead and read you the reference for that. God said this in Exodus thirty twenty one. it says, so they shall wash their hands and their feet that they die not. Okay. That they die not. So it was crucial that they did this. And you understand also, we learned that there's an accessibility here. Okay, this thing is accessible. It doesn't have anything to keep people away from it. And what we find is now recognize, as I said, these things are accessible to the people. They're accessible to everybody, but that doesn't mean that they can use them, right? Because understand, the lost man in the world today has access to the word of God. He has access to the Lord Jesus Christ. But they don't do their spiritual work within them until they surrender, Does that make sense? So just because a common man can be around the labor doesn't mean the labor is going to do what it's supposed to do. Just because they're near the altar doesn't mean it's going to do what they're going to do. It's not until they submit themselves, right? It's not until they submit themselves, and that's what it all comes down to. It's a matter of submission. We must give ourselves to the Lord. God wants to do work. So this labor is there to cleanse. It is there to clean. And this takes us to what it's displaying. What does the labor display in Exodus 40, verse 30 through 32? And put water there to wash withal. And Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet thereat. And when they went into the tent of the congregation and when they came near unto the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. So physically it displays water, right? It's there to to clean. It's always accessible to the priests and it's direly important as we saw because their lives literally depended on it. But then spiritually, what does the water and the labor represent? This is cool, man. This is cool. Because now we see... First, the water represents the Lord Jesus Christ. He represents the lost to the lost world. He represents Christ. And that water, check this out. The Lord speaking of him, speaking of, speaking to the woman at the well in John 4, he said this. John 4, verses 13 to 14. Jesus answered and said to her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again, speaking of the well. He's talking about physical water. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. He's not given a water. He's given himself. Ooh, right? Jesus. And as we think back to the water, remember we were in Exodus 17, way back in Exodus 17. The people are dying of thirst, and they're out in the desert, and they're like, Moses, you brought us out here to die. And he says, oh, well, let me go talk to God. Hold on. And God's like, hey, you know what? There's a big rock over there. Head on down there and bring your stick with you. I want you to smack that thing. And he's like, well, okay, whatever, God. So he goes down there, and boy, guess what happened in Exodus 17, 6. He says this. Behold, I will stand before thee there upon the rock in Horeb and thou shalt smite the rock and there shall come water out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And it will be because our Savior would be smited, right, would be beaten, right, that the water of life would flow to us. It's through his sacrifice Right? And what we find is they're not only going to be spiritually uh, cle- not only uh, taken care of, but they're going to be cleansed. Because when you and I receive Christ, our old life gets washed away. Amen. Amen. A new creature, a new life, Praise the Lord. a cleansed life as our spend- sin debt has been paid. And then secondly, the water represents the word of God, as we said before. This is the word. Now, so to the unbeliever, the labor represents and the water represents Christ. To the believer, it represents the word. Okay, And this is very, very relevant. Because remember, the Bible functions like a mirror as it reflects our sin back to us as we look into it. The same way these men would look up, walk up to the labor and look into the water, and it would reflect back to them and they could see if they had something on them. It's the same way when I look into the Word of God, it reveals to me the sin of my own life. It functions as a mirror. James 1, verses 23 through 25 says this, For if any man be a hearer of the Word and not a doer, he is likened to a man who behold his natural face in a glass. This a person who looks in a reflection. For beholdeth himself and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. He forgets even what he just saw. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, he's just talking about the Word of God, Whosoever looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. God's own Lord allows us to see ourselves through the reflection of his righteousness. And I look into who Christ is. I look at the image of Jesus and I compare it to who I am. And it shows me all the filth that needs to be addressed. Yes. Listen to this in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works, right? Which brings us to the function of the water for the believer. Bible's Bible is not only to function as a mirror, but also as an instrument of cleansing. Amen. This is awesome. Ephesians 5, verses 25 through 27. It says, Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church. God gives us pictures to help us to follow and understand. Husbands, how do you love your wife? As Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it sacrificially, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. Okay, So we are the bride of Christ. And if God's going to prepare us for the role that we're going to play in our relationship with him, he says, what I must do is take you to the word. Amen. The word must cleanse us. Because what will it do? It will allow the Word of God to reveal our spot, our wrinkle, and our blemish, and allow the Word of God not only to show us what's wrong, but then teach us how to fix it. Right? It says there, "To to cleanse. It's there to reveal our sin, but it's also there to teach us how we can live righteously. Praise God. So as we looked at the dire importance of the altar, Right? Not only for the picture that it is of the Lord's sacrifice, but our own. Then we've seen the dire importance of the cleansing. Water of the labor is not only a picture of the Lord's cleansing power to the lost, but also the power of the word of God to reveal sin and cleanse it in the life of the believer. So without the word, we cannot be cleansed. Then the third thing we look at. Next we come to the gate and the courtyard of the outer court in Exodus forty thirty-three. And he reared up the court and round about the tabernacle and the altar and set up the hanging of the court gate. So Moses finished the work. So this is the last step. This is the final thing. They've got everything in place. The tent's there. The, the labor's in place. The altar's in place. And now they're setting up the perimeter all the way around. Okay, so what do we know about it physically? First, physically, we you know, the outer fabric wall was made of linen and it was held up by wooden poles. In the outer court, anything that touched the ground was brass. But the hooks that would attach the linen to the poles and the caps were made of silver. The gate entrance was a decorative woven piece like a door, like it was in the door in the veil of the temple. Uh, this gives, to the best of my ability, I'm trying to find pictures. There's not very good representations. I really need to build my own tabernacle so we can photograph it. <laughs> Michael and I will get right on that. <laughs> But this kind of gives you at least a, a perspective of it. And what you find is that gate, everything's fine linen and say so get that gate. And that thing's really decorative and really, really beautiful. And it's, it's got a, a specific purpose of why that's the case. So if we understand physically kind of that's what it looks like. Spiritually, what we're going to look at is this. That linen represents righteousness. Okay, the white linen is righteousness. Then we look at the poles. The poles represent, remember, wood. They're wooden poles. They represent humanity, right? Corruptible mankind. And what we see here, the base plates everywhere that touches the ground. The sockets that these things are sitting in they're made of brass. The pins that are put into the ground, they're made of brass. What it pictures to us is every time humanity were to come in touch, contact with the earth, the result is judgment. Judgment. That's just the reality of things. Without the work of God in our life, judgment is the result. When you go inside of the tabernacle, you find that the sockets, all the base plates there, they're all silver. And where wood would come in contact with the ground, guess what? By way of redemption. Picture of salvation, holiness, deity. So when we're outside of the tabernacle, we're dealing with sin. We're still dealing with the washing and the cleansing of sin. Then we look at the, the top, the the, the the upper plates made of silver. The pictures of righteousness. Uh, we see here also the fact that oh, and, the, and then the, the, the gate, that fabric for the gate. What's cool about that is it mimics what's inside of the tabernacle, in the fact that it mimics heaven. Everything else is just a picture of righteousness. But then we have this picture that's in this gate which matches up with the door, which also matches up with the veil, okay? What does it do? It takes you through one, to the next, to the next, which means you must go from east to west. It's picturing the way to God. Again, little details. Now, the fact is, God's simply trying to show us that it's a matter of this travel, right? When we consider the gate, it's all about getting our focus on the fact that we're going to come through this way and we're going to continue on in. Each one of the instruments that God's put in place is all there for the purpose of allowing us to go to the next. Because if I come through the gate and I don't go to the the altar, and then I don't go to the labor, then I certainly can't go through the door. And if I don't go through the door, then I certainly can't get to the veil, right? So if I'm ultimately trying to get to the intimacy with God, I've got to do this stair-step process of traveling through. So as we're doing this Wednesday night study, and we've been talking about what it means to be a follower, what it means, the general idea of a follower is just simply move the way God moves. It's simple. That's what Christianity is. Move the way God moves. Move contrary to the way that you move. The Bible tells us that we all go our own way. We go the way we want to go. And we deal with the consequences, whatever they may be. Yet through all of our stupidity, through all of our bad choices, God lovingly, Says, hey, over here. You know, it's it's this way to me. Now you're going, you're going, you're going, uh, you're going east. No, 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 you're going south. Ah, you're going north. Oh, ah, whoa, whoa, whoa. remember, we go this way, east to west. Come to the gate. Would you come to the gate? Because if I can get you to the gate, maybe I can get you to the altar. If I can get you to the altar. You'll let this stuff go. You're going to be beat up a little bit from going to the altar because sacrifice ain't easy. But then what you're going to do is you're going to head on over that labor. And you know what I'm going to do? Clean you up. Amen. We're going to wash off all this junk the world has got on you. We couldn't get it off. Thank you, Jesus. Then we're going to walk over to the door. You know who the door is? Jesus said, I am the door with open arms. He says, come on in. I don't know what you were doing out there, but I've been waiting in here. And I, you know, I'm in here waiting on you. Let me come in to the holy place. Candlestick on our left. Spirit of God lighting. Go over to the table of showbread. Word of God. On our knees before the altar of incense, pray into the Lord. Intimacy restored, we hear on the other side of the veil, hey, come on in. I'm waiting on you. And we part the veil. And instead of being judged, which is what we think we're going to receive, we're overwhelmed by God's love. Because he doesn't shake his finger in our face. He says, you've dealt with that stuff. Come in here. You know what I've been wanting? You know what I've been burning in my heart? It's to gather you Amen. in my arms. Let's have that sweet intimacy that I created you for. Right. See, these things are accessible to all of us. Because God made a promise. He made a promise. He said, Romans 10, 13. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He's made every provision necessary. He's ready to fulfill his promise to us. Man, if we're his child and we're not close to him, it's not because he doesn't want us to be close. It's because we don't listen. It's because we're going the wrong way. And he says, I've made the pathway clear. Come through the gate. Have your eyes on the door. Go through the door, eyes on the veil. And step to the veil and experience the love of God. It's not difficult. Mm -mm. It's not hard to understand. It all comes down to us. Are we willing to submit? See, the sooner we figure this out, and the sooner we move God's way, the sooner we'll see God's vision realized intimacy with us but it's not until we come by way of the gate mm-hmm. through the door through the veil he's waiting on us the question is where are we mm-hmm. man if you're in the Holy of Holies praise the Lord don't step out if you're in the Holy Place and you're getting close keep your eyes on the veil mm-hmm. if you're in the outer court Get your face turned towards the door. And if you're in the village, <laughs> get out of the dirt and the dust and head towards the tabernacle. Because for whoever, no matter where you are, God's willing and ready to restore you. If you're out there today and you say, you know what, I don't have a relationship with God. I'm going to give you a moment. In just a moment, I'll give you an opportunity to establish the one. and answer to get to fulfill that promise that God made to you whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for today, God, for giving us, Lord, a beautiful message. Lord, that is uh, just rich with spiritual pictures and lessons for us. And God, I just pray that you'll help us, Lord, to submit. God, we're all going our own way at some stage and point in our life. And Lord, it's the sooner we submit to you, God, the sooner we surrender and turn to the truth. God, the sooner we can be set free, the sooner we can experience the love and the joy and the peace that you have for us. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. If you're here today and you say, you know what, Pastor? I know I'm, I've been struggling. I'm not where I need to be. And I know it. I don't, I don't have any question of where I am in regards to that temple. I don't have any doubt. I know I'm in the village. Well, I know I'm in the outer quarter. I know I'm in the Holy Wherever you are, you know where you are. I pray that God will guide you and you'll have receptive ears to hear as he draws you to him. He loves you right where you are. But boy, oh boy, does he have a relationship for you that will blow your mind if you'll just simply surrender to it. If you're here today and you say, you know what, Pastor, I, I don't know where I stand. I honestly don't know. I heard the promise, you said, that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, but I can't tell you that I've ever done that. Guys, August 11th of 2001, I surrendered my heart to Christ. My wife and I fell to the floor on our knees and prayed to God. Not worthy to be saved, not deserving to be saved, but it's not about being deserving. It's not about being worthy. It's the love of God. By the grace of God are we saved. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. We receive it as a free gift from Him. So if you're out there today and you say, you know what? I don't know where I stand. The beautiful thing is that God's ready to receive you right now. The Bible says, whosoever shall call. All today, I'm going to give you an opportunity to call out to him. Not by a religious ceremony or anything like that. This is a matter of a surrender of your heart to his. Their heads bowed and eyes closed. If you want to receive Christ as your Savior, you realize you're lost and you want to receive him. You'll have that opportunity now to establish that relationship their heads bowed and eyes closed. Repeat after me in your heart and mind if you want to receive Christ. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. And God, I am sorry for all that I have done. I understand that there's a price to be paid for sin. And I'm on my way to hell. But God, I hear you love me. And I'm asking you right now to forgive me of my sins. By faith, I'm asking you to save my soul and give me a home in heaven. God, I trust you with my life. I trust you with my eternity. I look forward to seeing you in heaven one day. Help me live for you. That people might see you in me. Thank you for your your love. Thank you for your saving grace. I'll see you in heaven one day.